Thanks for joining us wherever you're at, on campus here, outside, in the loft, in the beautiful sanctuary that's pretty packed for the 9 o'clock. Thanks for coming, guys. And, uh, and if you're joining online, but regardless, we're going to worship. Everyone. 
realize all of these things on a whole new level today. God, that uh, you would speak to us in those areas of our lives where we are fearful, doubtful, faithless, in need of just uh, assurance of your presence, of your power, your ability, Lord God, whether it be relationship or finances or work or other relationships. Lord God, whatever, whatever the case may be, we know God. And we want to know, Lord God, that you are faithful. And so show us, Lord. Help us, Lord. God, it's been so good to be in your presence. And just pray, God, that as we open up the word, that it would just be a sweet time. A sweet time, a time of celebration, a time of revelation, Lord God, a time of exploration, Lord. And uh, God, that you would just do great things as we... Open up our hearts and our minds to your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Well, welcome. Heard a, a story recently um, about these two guys who uh, went to Alaska. Who, who's been to Alaska before? A few people have been to Alaska. Well, these guys wanted to go to Alaska because they wanted to do some hunting in Alaska. And uh, something they did most years, and so they go to Alaska, and they hire a bush pilot to take them deep into the wilderness so they can get their elk, and um, they only anticipated getting one elk, but they got two elk this year, two, and the bush pilot flies in to rescue these guys and pull them out, and he's like, hey, there's no possible way that we can put two elk on this bush plane and get you out of here. The plane just isn't powerful enough. And uh, the guys are like, no, 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 this happened last year as well. This happened last year. We, we got two elk last year unexpectedly, and we had a smaller plane, and he took us out of here. And uh, so we're confident that you can do this. We're confident that you can get us out of here. So the, reluctantly, the bush pilot said, all right, well, let's put the elk on there and climb in and see what happens. And so they're cheering him on, and he's trying to get out of there, trying to lift off the water, and it's difficult, right? I mean, he's got all this weight. He's, it's difficult. But they lift off, and they're, boy, they're head right toward a mountain, and, and he's getting cheered on as, as they get, and they're gaining altitude. They're getting higher and higher, and, and they, they, they're about at the tip of the mountain, and they, they almost made it, but they crashed. And these two hunters, uh, one talked to the other and said, hey, his name is John. He said, hey, Hey, John, how, how do we do? He said, well, we made it about 200 yards farther than we did last year. <laughs> Terrible story, right? <laughs> so I've actually got a, a story of success. So last week, last week, we invited everybody all over the congregation to be praying for our parking situation. You guys remember that? How many were praying this week? Like we were praying this week, right? Well, the result of hundreds of people praying is that I, so the city had a meeting apart from me on Monday. They just gathered with their city managers and they had a meeting and, and then I get this long email from the city stating that we're still short parking spaces and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like, ah, where, what's going to happen? So they said, we want to get a meeting with you on Thursday this week. And so I went down for a meeting Thursday morning at 930 and 
after the Monday information, I, we sent out a reminder to everybody to keep praying, and uh, we'll just believe God for, you know, what he wants to do. And uh, so sure enough, it was the craziest thing. I show up to the meeting on Thursday morning at 930, and it's with two city officials, and they, they said yes to everything. <laughs> it was like this crazy thing. Yeah, it was like totally a, a praise moment where they said, hey, I, I, I said, hey, you guys have miscalculated the number of parking spaces that we have. We, we actually have, according to the regulation, 10 extra parking spaces uh, than, than we are actually required to have. And they, they looked at the numbers again and said, yeah, you're right, you're right, actually, you're right. And so they gave us the green lights to do the project. They gave us the green light to start the framing, to continue the framing inside there. Uh, they said, just don't close it up because we want to be able to, you know, you know, inspect it all and that sort of thing. They gave us the green light basically to start this week on painting. So I think we should start painting the outside this week. Um, I asked them, I said, because we've got a preliminary set of plans. This is another praise the Lord as well. Um, the, the first architect that we went, that we hired to do the project said, you know, I can't get to it for two months and it's going to, you know, take two or three months after that to get through the city and blah, blah, blah. And, um, so we hired another architect, and this architect got it done. He got a preliminary set of plans done for us in about 10 days. And so we've got a preliminary set of plans, and they're going out to the subcontractors. The process is the subcontractors have to draw an electrical and plumbing and, and uh, fire sprinklers and all that sort of thing. And then hopefully next week, this coming week, we'll be able to submit those plans. Worst case, the following, we'll, we'll be able to submit those plans. I asked them, this guys at the city, I said, how long will it take for those plans to turn around and so that you can issue a permit. Because initially, the, the, the architect, our first architect, said it would take two to three months for the city to turn those plans around. They said it'll be two weeks, but we're going to try to get it done in 10 days. <laughs> so um, we are months ahead of our original, uh, our, our secondary kind of time frame. And uh, so uh, really good news. Let's throw up some pictures there. Um, we've got some mock-up. This is kind of what the inside of that building will look like. Um, chairs, there's, um, you can see kind of the back, it's toward the bottom of the screen. You, you walk in, that's where the front door you go in and you get the platform and the, the partition wall in the back there. Let's go look at the front there next. So that's kind of what it will look like, except for we're changing the color scheme and the color scheme will be pretty much an off white on the building with the black trim. And, um, and so the reality is, is that we could, we could be in there if everything goes as planned in the next like three to four months, as opposed to like six months or whatever it was going to be. So that's really good news. On the good news front, we actually, um, we're, we were able to refinance all of this property. We, um, we bought it a number of years ago and the rates were higher than they are now. So we we're able, actually able to refinance and drop like two and a quarter points off of the, uh, the the interest that we were paying. And so with that transaction, we're actually going to be able to pay off the second mortgage that we have. And yeah, really good news. And we're going to reduce our monthly by $2,000 a month. Our monthly mortgage will be less $2,000 less a month. And that second mortgage will get paid off. So Really good news. So it, it, it frees us up to be able to really focus on that project to raise up the money that we need to get for that project. And so I did some calculations. And I, as I said last week, the, the number initially was like 125. And then we met with a bunch of contractors and got some bids. And it was it, it's going to be closer to 225, $225,000 for that remodel, which if 
we didn't have people in the church volunteering uh, to do a lot of the work that's being done in there, it'd probably be twice that. It'd be twice that. So um, it's going to be about $225,000. There's roughly, we've raised about $27,000. So we have roughly another $200,000 or so. Um, there's always surprises, so we're not sure exactly the hard number, but it's roughly another 200000 that needs to come in. So now, instead of needing it to come in in the next six months, we need it to come in the next three months. And so this is the deal. I, I cracked it down. Or did, I know it's easier to, to digest smaller numbers. Uh, it's easier for me anyway. And so I said, okay, what is the number? If we've got 300 families in the church, what is the number? And the number is about $700 per family. If, so if everybody gave $700, every family gave $700, we'd be at that mark and be able to get the project paid, bought and paid for in, in the next few months. So um, I know a lot of you have already bought chairs and squares. I've already bought chairs and squares. But um, um, in light of this new information, our family's going to give at least that $700, and uh, we're going to do everything we can. And so I'm just asking you to pray about doing the same thing. If you can, great. Uh, some will be able to do more than that. And that will be great because some won't be able to do anything at all be, just because of circumstances and that sort of thing. So, again, just pray. Say, Lord, do you want me to participate in this? And if so, how much? Is it 700 Is it 1400 2100 Some will be able to give more. In the past, we've had people give you know, $30,000 to projects like this, $50,000 to projects like this. So whatever you want to do, I believe at the end of the three months or four months or so, we'll get that project done bought and paid for without any debt. And that's going to be really important. So um, anyway, so I'm going to pray for that and pray for our text. We're back in First Timothy chapter 6 today, uh, continuing our study in First Timothy. And so why don't we go ahead and stand up? And I know we've already prayed and that sort of thing, but we're going to pray some more. In fact, um, if you would like to, if you feel compelled to come and pray over this whole project. I want to give us a minute or so to do that, but you have to come up to speak into Vox One again. So we're not going to take a ton of time to do this, but I just want to give people an opportunity to pray over this and pray into it. And so if that's you, then uh, I'll start and you come on up and, and speak into it. If not, no big deal. We'll just continue on with the message. But Lord, we just want to pray. We thank you, God, for open doors, for answered prayer. Lord, it's amazing what happens when hundreds of people just decide to pray and to believe for your hand to move in difficult and, and really uh, seeming impossible situations, Lord God. So we say thank you for that, Lord. Thank you. Um, it, it's, 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 a, it's amazing what you will do. Somebody said last week it's a Jericho moment for our church. And uh, as we prayed and as we believed the, the the walls came down and we were able to we we're able to get in and access and and make progress with this new space that we have lord god and so we say thank you thank you thank you lord we believe god that you're in this we believe that this will give us an, a greater opportunity to impact our community and our world with the life-changing message of jesus christ and so we say Yes, and amen to your plans. We thank you for your plan, and we believe, God, you're in it and that you're going to provide for it. So your will be done, we pray. Thank you, Jesus. Anybody else want to be bold? Dave, this is so surprising that you're being bold here. <laughs> God, you know, one of the things the Lord is laying on my heart is to whom much is given, much will be required. Mm. So, Lord, we're going to be required, Lord, as, as these people come into this new facility, Lord, to love on them. To show them Jesus, Lord. Help us to do that, Lord. 
The project's going to happen. The funds are going to come in. But there's one thing that we cannot buy, Lord. It's your presence. Thank you, Lord. We need your anointing on this place, Mm -hmm. Lord. Yes, Lord. We need you to walk the aisles, Lord. Mm -hmm. We need you to put your hands on people, Lord, Mm -hmm. and set them free, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And open their eyes that they might receive the word and be saved, Lord. Father, we just place it in your hands, Lord, in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Yeah, thanks, David. Anybody else? All right, well, thank you, Lord. We're so grateful, and we're, we're going to continue to pray and ask and seek and knock, Lord God, and then do what you've asked us to do and just trust you for the outcome, Lord God. And uh, so thank you for this time. God bless the word to our hearing, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. First Timothy chapter six. We actually took a break from our first Timothy study for a number of weeks to talk about faith and all kinds of stuff. And so faith will obviously be weaved into everything that we do because without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so uh, he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so we want to always honor him with our faith. So we've covered a lot so far in our study. And uh, just kind of to kind of recap here, um, remember we spent two weeks asking God two questions. What do you want me to do today? That was the first question. And then, Lord, what do you want to do through me today? So they're similar questions, but what do you want me to do today? What do you want to do through me today were a couple of the questions that we spent a couple of weeks uh, talking about. Also, we asked, what does godliness look like? And you can go back and listen to the messages and get all of these, all of this information uh, but these are just kind of the highlights. We declared faith in Jesus changes everything. Uh, we talked about integrity. We warned against false teachers. We talked about the mercy of God. We received instruction about worship. We talked about leadership within the church. We received wisdom in dealing with widows and elders, all from First Timothy. <clears throat> and today as we wrap up, well, actually, we'll take a couple weeks to wrap up First Timothy chapter 6. Today we'll learn how to respond to difficult situations. We will look at what promotes godly living. And we'll see how to avoid snares concerning money. So the message is titled today, Honoring God in the Testing Times. Honoring God in the Testing Times. Have you ever been through a test before? Man, I, I talked with a guy yesterday who was going through a pretty legitimate test and um, after a long, long conversation with him, he realized that he just needed to humble himself in the midst of the test, trusting that God is sovereign, trusting that God sees him and has seen his progress in his life, and that he, could, he can trust God and not worry about what men think. And so at the end of the day, with his test, he decided to keep his eyes on God, not get welled up. Sometimes in a test, if we're being falsely accused or whatever the case may be, we can kind of well up with pride or get angry or get frustrated or get disappointed. Uh, But the test I've found in my life, and as we see through scripture, the tests always reveal something about us. And it's an opportunity for God to shape us, to, um, to refine us and to make us into the men and women that he desires for us to be. So honoring God in the testing time. It's, this is the most important time in our lives where we need to figure out how, how to honor the Lord. And so we're going to look at some circumstances here 
in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and uh, try to figure some stuff out today. So number one, we must honor God, especially when in a test. We must honor God, especially within a test. I've noticed that God doesn't always deliver us from the test. He will deliver us ultimately, but it's not till we learn the lesson that the test is designed to teach us. Have you noticed that? And if we get through the test without having learned the lesson that the test was designed to teach us, we just find ourselves in that same test over and over again until, because God is good, he wants us to learn lessons. He'll just take us through the ringer one more time and help us out of his great love so that we might learn from the test the thing that we need to learn from the test. Why? Because the next test is going to require what we learn from the last test. And I was, as I was sharing with this guy yesterday and talking with this guy yesterday, actually my wife and I were both talking with him, we said this is a unique test, meaning that this isn't something that you could foresee. And that often is the test. It's, it's like this is something that I couldn't foresee, something I really couldn't prepare for, but previous tests in this man's life we're preparing him for this unique test. And I wonder what your unique test is. We must honor God, especially when in uh, tests. God doesn't deliver us from the test. Usually he just gives us the instructions about how to navigate the test. And he's teaching us something through the test. Israel was in Egypt for 400 years. It was a big, long 400-year test. Did God deliver them eventually? He, de- he delivered them eventually. Um, taking them through the wilderness. They were in the wilderness for 40 years because they couldn't figure out how to pass the test. And so God kept them in the test until, uh, until they figured it out and they, they were able to trust the Lord. And so Joshua was able to take them into the promised land. Last week, we talked about the testing of the early church, the apostles specifically, how each of them suffered physically in their physical bodies for their faith it was a test remember the test prior to the cross when jesus gets arrested what happened everybody scattered right it was a test it was a test what do you do when there's opposition what do you do when things are unfolding differently than you expected will you pass the test and so many of them fail the test it seems like the only ones who pass the test are the women around jesus they were faithful to jesus Um, when he was arrested at the cross and it seemed like everybody else especially the man they scattered but they learned something in that testing about stick-to-itiveness about obedience about faithfulness about trust and so after the crucifixion after the resurrection after the ascension when jesus sent them out they had a new boldness they were filled with the holy spirit right power was in them and they had this new boldness so that when the test hit them again when opposition hit them again not with somebody else but in their own physical bodies they were able to endure and uh, most of them died uh, suffering persecution for their faith all of them suffered persecution and most of them actually ended up dying at the hand of of their enemies so as we look at verse 1 in 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're talking about slaves for a moment here, for you know, a few, mi- few minutes. And as I honestly was thinking about slavery, and maybe your text says servants, verse 1 says all slaves, maybe your text says servants, it's the same word, should show full respect for their masters so they will, so they will not bring shame on the name of 
God and his teachings. I, this, it was difficult for me. I, I spent four days thinking about this, this one verse. Wrestling with this idea of slavery and why doesn't God speak differently about slavery? What's, what's the backstory here? Why, why are people instructed to live honorably in this dishonorable relationship? And so I've discovered some things and worked through some things and I figured some things out and was able to write a halfway, hopefully coherent message that speaks to us in this 21st century world where we're not in this culture, in other cultures around the world, there is slavery. There is that type of oppression, but we don't necessarily see it. Although there are in the sex trade, there are sex slaves in our culture, in our communities, in our country, and so there is that sort of thing, but it's kind of veiled, it's behind closed doors. We don't necessarily, we're not necessarily impacted or participating in it, but it's happening. So it's difficult to heed the instruction in a difficult situation. And uh, so I just spent four days praying about it, thinking about it, and um, writing about it so that we might hopefully <laughs> come away today with some understanding without glossing over anything. Uh, so slaves. The word slave in the Greek is doulos. It's, it means servant or slave. Uh, doulos in the Vines Expository Dictionary says this. It means bondman or bondmaid. From the word deo, to bind, a slave. Originally the lowest term in the scale of servitude came also to mean one who gives himself up to the will of another. You can read about that in 1 Corinthians 7 or Romans 6 and Doulos became the most common and general word for the word servant, as we see in Matthew 8 and 9. And it became a meaning of defining a servant, but without bondage, without, without the type of slavery, you know, things that we kind of conjure up in our head, you know, Civil War, slavery type stuff. So it became, it, it started out, you know, slavery and kind of changed and morphed into this word servant. Um, in fact, in calling himself a, a bond slave of Jesus, Paul recognized that he was a servant, a doulos, a bond slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about that in Romans 1.1. 1, 1. That he had been formerly a bond slave of Satan, and that having been brought to, uh, bought by Christ, he was now a willing bond slave to a new master. So doulos is a word for slave or servant, one person owning another. As I broke it down, I thought this is one person owning it. This is difficult to for us to digest and to understand why. Why didn't um, the script? Why don't the scriptures address it differently? And we're going to understand that here as we go forward. Uh, so, do lost one person owning another, one person controlling the life of another, one person in charge of another. So, a difficult situation. Difficult place if you're the slave to try to figure out how to honor the Lord in that relationship. But this is a, as I thought about it, I realized this is a clear picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Again, Paul declared in Romans 1 1, and Peter declared this to be true. 2 Peter 1 1, uh, Peter said, This letter is from Simon Peter, a slave, that same word, doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So, Peter, the one who abandoned Christ, now identifies himself as a slave of Christ and an apostle of Christ. He realized that 
His life needed to be 100% God's in order for him to be faithful to the calling that was upon his life and faithful to the sacrifice that Jesus made on his behalf. So Peter declared, Paul declared, they declared this about themselves, that they are slaves of God. Slaves of God. It's a, we, we are owned as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are owned by God. This is, this is what Christianity means. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We are owned by God. One person owning another. Jesus owns us. We've been bought with a price. So as I thought about slavery, it kind of put, it, it helped me to understand it from a different context. And I've taught through this before and I've wrestled with it before and I've understood some things before, but it's just, I wrestled with it again in this go around. Doulos, one person con- owning another, one person controlling the life of another. That's really what Jesus has called us into. He's called us into a life where we're filled with the Spirit of God and controlled by the Spirit of God. Jesus actually is meant to have control of our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. One person owning another, controlling the life of another, one person in charge of another. As Christians, we are to submit to the leadership of Jesus Christ. But then there's the institution of slavery. How are slaves and slave owners to relate to one another? And we read again, 1 Timothy 6, 1, all slaves should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. Isn't that, that's strong language. Slaves are to show respect so that they don't bring shame to God. So here Paul instructs slaves to show full respect for their masters. John F. Woolvard wrote, Under normal circumstances, slaves and masters had no association outside the institution of slavery. With the advent of the gospel, with the preaching of the gospel, however, these two groups found themselves thrown together in the congregation in in new ways, creating problems the apostles were forced to deal with repeatedly. So here, Paul instructs slaves how to show full respect for their masters. 1 Corinthians 7, 20 and 22, Paul puts the Christian life into perspective, the, the slave life into perspective. Whether slave or free, we are slaves of God. Let's read 1 Corinthians 7, 20, 22. In the, in the, again, Paul puts things into perspective here. He says, yes, each of you should remain as you were when God called you. Are you a slave? Don't let that worry you. But if you get a chance to be free, take it. And remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord, right? It's, it's, it's almost a, an oxymoron. We, free, we're free in the Lord in the sense that we're out from underneath uh, this type of slavery, but we're instead choosing to be slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But with that comes great freedom. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a difficult concept for us to understand. There's freedom. Some would say that there's freedom when we're able to do whatever it is that we want to do. But all that kind of life creates in us is bondage. We become slaves to the things that we obey. And so if we're, if we're saying, I, I, I feel most free when I'm able to do whatever I want to do, we're believing a lie. Because the reality is all that, does, that life does is entrap us and enslave us. But, but what we're told in the scripture is that if we're in Christ, we're, we find freedom and liberty. Because we serve a good master whose first desire is to bless us and to save us and to forgive us and to redeem us and to set us free and to adopt us into his family. 
Remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ. Isn't that interesting? It's, it uh, changes the paradigm a little bit. It's a, it's a bit of a paradox. I mean, then I wrestled with this question. Why didn't Paul just speak out against the institution of slavery? Why didn't he just speak out against it? I mean, it's obviously deplorable. But the truth is, slavery was so a part of the Roman culture and, and down throughout history, it was enshrined in Roman law. If, if Paul went after this institution of slavery, he would have had to devote his whole life to the overturning of this institution. But instead, he realized that if he would just preach the gospel, if he would take the gospel to the region and to the area, then, then freedom would ultimately be the result. Paul spent all his time calling people to recognize Jesus' leadership. So slave and, and master, he spent all of his time calling people to recognize Jesus' leadership and lordship so that they might come under his authority. Paul knew that the reign of King Jesus would resolve all injustices, and that's what we look forward to. But we've got to have a kingdom, per, uh, kingdom perspective, believing that uh, submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ, the, the kingdom of God, and, and uh, to his reign and his rulership, will, will, it, it will begin to handle all injustices. Because when the heart of a person changes, whether it be a master or a slave, God begins to change the way that they live their lives. Paul did tell slaves, again, 1 Corinthians 7, 21, if you can get a chance to be free, take it. Like he's saying, if you can get out of that desperate situation, get out of it. But in the meantime, Paul gives instructions about the relationship of slaves to their masters. This is good instruction for employees as well as slaves. And so maybe this is where it kind of bridges over to our lives because most of us are employed somehow where we we report to someone so maybe we can read uh, verse one all slaves servants employees etc should show full respect for their masters so they will not bring shame on the name of god and his teachings in other words work to do everything is unto the lord even if we've got a boss a manager an overseer who's unjust who's not easy to work for, who's not fun to be employed by. We have a biblical responsibility to honor that person, those people, that company, that responsibility that we have within the company. We have a responsibility to honor it. We're to do everything that we do is unto the Lord. So this is a difficult thing if you're a slave. If you're also, if you work for a difficult person, this is, this is hard to do. But if we can't honor the Lord in the testing times, then are, there's, not, there's probably not much to our faith, right? Especially if we keep going around the same bend. And so maybe you're in a bad situation at work and the Lord's trying to show you something. Just submit to his plan. Submit to what he's trying to show you and watch the beautiful work that he will accomplish in your life. So if you work at a job that you do not enjoy, if you work for a person, a difficult person that you don't enjoy, just ask the Lord, Lord, how do I honor you and honor my employer in this situation? Showing full respect means a number of things. 
Um, I just wrote down a handful of them. What does it mean to show full respect? If we're, this is what God has called us to do, what does that look like? I wrote down number one, do, do the job you're paid for. <laughs> Basics, right? Sometimes, though, when we're disgruntled, we, try to, we get in there and we do the very minimal. But we actually dishonor God when we do that because he's told us that we're actually working for him and we're to do everything as unto him and not as unto men. So we actually have... Uh, a holy calling as as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, a holy calling to do the job that we're paid for with excellence. Word number two, work work diligently all of the hours we're paid for. So no long lunches, no showing up late, no going home early. Do the work that you're paid for. And then be on time. When we hire a new person at Harvest, I send them into Ron's office. I say, Ron, tell them how we operate around here. And um, so Ron gives them the rundown. He's like, you don't ever want to be late, right? Because I don't like it when somebody's late. They'll argue, what if you're late? Well, I'm, I'm not actually late because the meeting doesn't start till I get there, right? So, <laughs> so I use my own justification because I'm, I'm late at times. But there are in every work culture, there's an expectation, right? Do the job you're paid for, work diligently, all the hours you're paid for, be on time, have a good attitude, go the extra mile. These are all things that every employer values and expects from their people. So maybe your boss is your test. I've had plenty of those in my work life. Your boss is your test. Uh, Maybe your job is your test. Maybe your circumstances are your test. What What is your test? What is God wanting to teach you so that you can graduate from that test. Uh, We're in graduation season, and God wants you to graduate from that test so that he can take you into another test. But with the test come maturity, uh, depth, um, strength. With the tests, there's growth and there's progress and we get unstuck when we graduate from a test and we get promoted into other things tests help us to see our blind spots tests strengthen our faith tests make us rely on god to remind us that we need him Honoring God in the testing time, number one, we must honor God, especially when in a test. Closely related to this one is the second point here. We must honor God when dealing with people. Very much like I just talked about, but slightly different. It says, if the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Verse 2, those slaves should work all the harder because their their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. So when the master and the slave share the same faith, sometimes there can be, and especially if they go to the same church, part of the same fellowship, you can sometimes as a worker, uh, as a servant, as an employee, get a little slack, right? Because there's familiarity and friendship, right? So you can actually become a burden to the person that you're working for because you've gotten too close to them and you've decided... You've decided that just because they're, they're, because they're your friends or brother or sister in Christ that you don't need to work as hard because they won't get rid of you. 
I fired, pl- I've, I fired plenty of people who were uh, brothers in the Lord, sisters in the Lord, when they weren't doing their job. Um, because there's no room for it in God's kingdom. There's just no room for it. We're called to work as unto the Lord. And when we don't work as unto the Lord, uh, the result is that you lose your job. It's just the way it works in the, in the world, and that's how it works um, everywhere. That's how it works around here. If the masters are believers, there's no excuse for being disrespectful. Disrespect would be, hey, showing up late, not working your hours, leaving early, being lazy, not going the extra mile. The servant should work all the more diligently to bless the believer they work for, right? Whether the master, employer, or boss is a believer or not, the servant should work as unto the Lord and not unto men. 1 Timothy 6, 2, second part, talks about false teachers and true riches. It says this, teach these things, Timothy. Teach what things, Timothy? Well, all the stuff that he's been talking about in this book in 1 Timothy and up to this point in verse 6, teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. Some people may contradict our teachings, but these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They, th- these teachings promote a godly life. So Paul's instruction to young Timothy as he pastored the church in Ephesus is to help people to live a godly life. But there's other people with a different agenda, with different motivation. So Paul's instructing Timothy, as Paul is Timothy's spiritual father and overseer, he's instructing them, he's instructing Timothy to teach these things that he wrote about in the first letter to Timothy. His teachings promote a godly life, the verse says. And this is what's always the motivation of a good teacher, promoting a godly life. This is the, desi- this is the desire that is within a good Bible teacher. They want to promote godly living. They feel a call to promote godly living. So number three in our notes, we must honor God with what we teach and believe. We must honor God with what we teach and believe. So a perfect example of this is that how many have heard of Enneagram personality tests? Few of us, right? Well, so we as a staff started investigating and, and, and kind of helping to understand personalities. We we started researching Enneagrams and uh, personality tests so that we might help so we might be helped in understanding how to relate one to another. But this is the problem. We just found out recently that the, its its origins is the New Age movement. We had no idea. And so we're done with Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, it's not from the Lord. And we didn't realize it. We just thought it's just a personality test, blah, blah, blah. And somebody highlighted it to us. They said, hey, have you looked into Enneagrams uh, deeper? And we said, no. And they said, well, here, here's a podcast. And so we listened to it. And so uh, we're no longer, we don't want to use anything that's not from the word of God. And if we're, if we make a mistake and we, we, we realize that we're thinking about things differently or from not a biblical perspective or believing something that's not biblical, then we, then we, are, we, we, we have to change our minds. And I, I wonder if maybe um, coming out of you know, the world, we come into the church and we, we bring with us worldly things that aren't from God and we try to merge them or marry them or hold on to them 
as we try to follow Jesus. And as we realize that those things aren't from God, we have this responsibility. And in the Scripture, um, uh, people involved in the occult, they brought their books, their sorcery books, and they burned them to the tune of millions of dollars in sorcery. But they burned them because they knew that they weren't from the Lord and they needed to get rid of them. So maybe you've got some stuff in your life that you need to burn. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's, I always get this wrong, astrology. Is it astrology, the signs? and Is it astrology or is it astronomy? It's astrology, right? I never get that right. Maybe you're reading that every day in the paper it's, it's new age, it's occult type stuff that you shouldn't, you need to be looking to God's word to direct your steps and to direct your life, not to the, the local, you know, the recent astrology stuff. What is it that God is trying to strip out of your life because it's, it's not from him, it's something that you're holding on to. I, I don't know what it is. Only you can know that. Only God, only, but when the, you have the responsibility to do what we did when we figured out we were on the wrong path regarding this Enneagram thing, we, we scrapped it immediately. Like, we didn't have to have a conversation with God about it. We realized this is not from the Lord, so we got to scrap it. Verse 4, anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Be, be careful for... God, God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. If, if what you're doing is swelling you with arrogance, be Be careful. Be careful. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. I've seen this happen over and over again, and it's divisive. People within the church um, quibbling over um, uh, marginal doctrinal things that, that just cause division. People in the greater church, the ecclesia, the, the church in the community and the world, people squabbling over things that are unimportant, that, that is causing division within the church. It stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Remember, a sincere teacher of God's word, the desire of that man or woman is that they would help people grow in godliness. It's always about pointing people to Jesus. It's always about pointing people to the word. It's always about, uh, by God's grace, doing what God has asked us to do. Paul addressed the same issue in chapter one. It's like he's come full circle. If you go back and read 1 Timothy chapter one, we've come full circle where Paul's addressing false teachers within the church. Paul's teachings are designed to promote a godly life. These others are causing people to divide within the church, causing problems. Verse 4 again, such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments, ending it ending in jealousy, divisions, slander, and evil suspicions. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt, and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. So a person's motivation in teaching should be to point people to Jesus, not for some kind of gain. To make people aware of their need for His grace. 
to help people have a kingdom perspective, to encourage people to share their faith, to challenge people to live for Jesus, to do what we are doing today, encouraging people to honor God in everything. If a person's motivation is personal, it's for, if it's for gain, uh, to be heard, their motivation is skewed and unhealthy, and the result won't be good and godly. So number four, we must honor God with our ability to be content as we wrap up these last few verses. So we're, we're, we've got this opportunity to honor God in all these areas of our lives. And the, the last area for today is our ability to be content. Contentment in a consumer-driven culture is very difficult. Like the, every ad, every television commercial, everything that we read about or hear about is, is, is to create discontentment in our lives. Like, hey, you could have this new truck. I use that illustration because I'm always looking at new trucks, right? I don't need a new truck, right? But I, I'm always admiring new trucks. You could have this new thing, this new shiny gadget. You can have, what, you can have all of these things, right? I saw David Apodaca's new Harley Davidson. I'm like, I could have a new yeah. Harley Davidson. <laughs> But I don't need a Harley. My wife doesn't want me to have a Harley, so I'll probably never get a Harley. So there you go. But it's another shiny thing. I'll ride yours. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. We just have to be careful that we're not always running to the next shiny thing because it gets us distracted from God's plan for his life, for our lives. I've noticed that being content leads to peace. Being content leads to peace. Being discontent always kind of keeps you anxious, right? Verse 6 says, Yet true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. I don't think you can actually have contentment without true godliness. Because true godliness gives us that perspective that, hey, I'm not living for this life. My life is not my own. I belong to the Lord. My stuff belongs to the Lord. So yet true godliness with contentment is, is itself great wealth. That's where we find the true wealth in life. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. That's probably one of the hardest verses in scripture, right? If we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Especially in our culture where we are consumers as a rule, it's hard to think about the basics of food and clothing and being content with those things. The only thing we take with us when we die are our good works. That's it. That's it. You don't get to take your Harley with you. I don't get to take my truck with me. I don't get to take my guns with me or whatever it is that I've got. Um, the only thing I get to take is my good works. Everything else is wood, hay, and stubble. Like the farmer had too many crops. He's like, hey, build bigger barns, right? Bigger barns, bigger bank accounts, bigger houses, bigger cars, bigger whatever. And the scripture says, "You fool! That tonight your very tonight your very your life is is required of you." Like, I don't know. I just it, contentment brings a balance and a peace to life like nothing else. But people, verse nine says, "But people who long to be rich fall into temptation." are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. 
For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and uh, pierced themselves with many sorrows. People do that with debt. You know, do it all kinds of different ways. You you have to have something, you go get it. It just requires maintenance and work and debt and all kinds of stuff. I talked with a buddy of mine a few years ago. And I said, why don't you, why why aren't you in church? Why, what? What's going on? You, you've been out of church for so long. Why aren't you in church? And he said, you know why I'm not in church? Because I don't want to let go of my money. <laughs> Appreciated his honesty. I don't want to tithe, he said. I don't want to. If I go to church, I know they're going to talk to me about money. I'm like, all right, we'll stay out of church then. Because you can't serve God of money, so you made your choice. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Honoring God in the testing times. Number one, we must honor God, especially when in a test, when dealing with people, with what we teach and believe, and with our ability to be content. So how do we respond to difficult situations? We need to honor God, right? Let's invite the worship team out, and we're going to sing some more songs. How do we deal with difficult situations? That's one of the questions that we said we'd talk about in the beginning. We just choose to honor God by putting Him first, by doing what He asks us to do, What promotes godly living? That's one of the other questions that we said we'd highlight. Biblical and godly teaching is what what promotes godly living. So get under some good biblical and godly teaching and watch your life become more godly. Um, How do we avoid snares concerning money? Love God more than you love your money. That's just basically the bottom line. So with that, why don't we go ahead and stand up and we're going to worship some more and um, honor the Lord with our singing. Amen. Amen. Lord, thank you for this time. Thank you, God, for your word, for what it has taught us. Pray that it would sink deep in our souls and uh, continue to convict us and change us, challenge us. God, that it would show us your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship.
God for just faithfully meeting us whenever we whenever we step in and we invite you, you show up, God. So thank you for, for just opening your word and giving us truth this morning and and uh, just bless us as we go, Lord. And keep us uh, keep keep our gaze ever on you as we as we depart this morning and and all that. In Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>